0: Welcome to Series 3 of Not True But Useful, a podcast from Cheek by Jowl. I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins, and every week I'm chatting to artistic directors Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, looking back at four decades of their productions all across the world. Together, we'll take a look at what these plays have to tell us about the messy business of being human. of the week is Shakespeare's Macbeth. It's a bloodthirsty psychological thriller set in 11th century Scotland. And here's a super speedy synopsis before we begin. Best friends Macbeth and Banquo emerge as the heroes of a battle to defend Scotland. As they leave the fight, they come across three weird sisters, often known as the witches, who tell them that Macbeth will become king, but Banquo will be father to kings. The current king, Duncan, showers honours on Macbeth and his wife, Lady Macbeth, in reward for his heroism. He arrives at their castle to celebrate the end of the war. The pair murder him in his sleep and frame his sons for the crime. Macbeth and Lady Macbeth become king and queen of Scotland, but are now tortured by paranoia. Macbeth goes on a murder spree to defend his power. He assassinates Banquo to prevent the witch's prophecies that his children will be kings. Banquo's ghost returns to torment him. As the Macbeths begin to unravel, Duncan's son Malcolm gathers an army to overthrow him. Tormented by hallucinations and nightmares, Lady Macbeth commits suicide, and Macbeth dies in the fight. And now over to Declan and Nick. Well, hello Declan and Nick.
1: Hello Lucy. Hello Lucy.
0: So... I guess everybody who's listening to this podcast, you might have sat an English GCSE at some point in the last two decades. So those are the exams that you have to take in this country when you're kind of 15 or 16. You've probably had to study Macbeth, and you've probably had to answer a question that's something along the lines of, who is responsible for Duncan's murder? Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, or the witches? And one of the things that we talk about a lot in this podcast is the danger of trying to solve plays like this. It's something that's, you know, maybe useful to do in a classroom, but less useful to do in a rehearsal. Why shouldn't we be setting out to solve
1: Macbeth? Because I don't think we can solve anything, and that's why I think these plays are so so great, and what great works of art are, is that the more you know them, the less you solve them. The more you know them, the greater the mystery is. It's like studying physics. The more you know, the, the more you realise you don't know. And bit by bit, Macbeth gets more and more mysterious. So to begin with, if you're teaching it, you say it's about Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, who both conspire to murder the king so they can become king queen of Scotland. And you start with that. And that's like a first rung of a ladder. Then you start going up the ladder. But the problem is, you realize that's not true. That it's it's not really about that at all. In fact, it gets less and less clear why they're doing it in the first place. And so it's not like you go up a ladder and you can go down the ladder again. You go up the ladder, but the first rung or two that you've gone up, they're sort of nonsense, really. Who knows why they do it? They don't know why they do it.
0: So, Nick, if I were to ask you, what do you think are some of the big unsolvable things in Macbeth which fascinate you?
2: Well, that that absolute question is, they never say why they want to be king and queen. It's never part of their fantasy that what they can do when they're king and queen They're just on this irresistible helter-skelter journey that they've somehow locked themselves on, that they have to do this deed. And somewhere they know it's going to end in total disaster. And of course it does.
1: What's more and more frightening about it, the more and more you're akin to it, it's not so much that they want it, they're terrified of not doing it. And it's like this monstrous birth gets born, like Iago's monstrous birth. The monstrous birth is the absolute dread of them failing to accomplish the deed. That's why they do it. It's not like they want anything.
0: So the fascinating thing about approaching the plays like this, I think, is that When you're a young director, like me, I think you start out with the idea that you've got these great, big, huge plays and your responsibility is to try and find reasons for everything, to try and solve everything. But you're sort of arguing the opposite, right? That what is amazing about these plays is they touch on things that are mysterious for all of us as humans. It's about probing the edges of these big mysteries.
1: That's true. There's one preamble I'd like to say towards that. There's there's something rather irritating about hearing an old man like me talking about this because one of the things that you learn over the years is what you don't need. And it's very irritating for me to say to young people, you don't need that, you don't need that, because it's a lot of experience that has taught me what I don't need. So I can airily say things like, "Um, make sure you don't read too much. But that's partially because I've had the experience of reading too much and realizing how little of it's helped. So when you start, you have to start somewhere. Part of the problem, I think, lies behind this magic word, understand, which is a sort of crazy thing that we feel we've got a right to understand, we must understand. If we don't understand, we have a big problem. I don't think we understand another human being, for example. I don't think when you get to know somebody, you understand them. You start to accept them, you become more familiar with their smell, you get more used to them. But I don't know, the older I get, the less I understand what the word understand means. And I'm very aware that I've used the word twice in that last sentence. Yeah, what am I trying to say? That the play is mysterious because you don't know why they do it. And the reason they seem to do it is because they're terrified of not doing it. That their their dread seems to be fueled by a failure to do something rather than something they actually want to do. I agree, that's incredibly mysterious. And can I explain it? No, I can't. <laughs> but that that's what keeps me going.
0: Would you say that there's also maybe a danger to trying to understand too much? Because if we can explain it away, we kind of kill it. You know, they can't explain it. And there's so many things in our own lives which we can't explain. We can't explain why we do a lot of things. And we can't often explain them to ourselves. So if we set about trying to explain why Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are doing what they're doing... Sort of missing the point of the play a bit.
1: Yes. I think when Nick and I do a play, there are certain aspects of what we're doing we can explain to each other. Normally, those all completely vanish and a new structure emerges, which we're not able to explain. But that thing that we can't explain is normally the best bit of what we're doing. So the conundrum that one has to deal with is that it is our prerogative, it's our drive in life to try to understand things. But to understand that we're not going to at the same time is also really important. Why would you embark on a task that's doomed to failure? The problem is, that's life, or welcome to life. We know that there's always going to be mystery. What that mystery is changes as as we go along. And that's why we can come back and back and back to these plays. The play's always completely different. It's like Shakespeare's rewritten it in the last year. Um, But that's because we're changing. We see things that are completely different in it. But what they are, we can't necessarily explain.
2: But also the play is extraordinary in one respect. It's a very modern story about a man who gets all-powerful and consequently is absolutely on his own. And one of the major themes in the play is simply loneliness. Part of that, of course, as soon as they've done the murder, his marriage is destroyed. But we see him, at the end, absolutely on his own. And as a tyrant, of course, he has no democratic um, sustainability. And that makes him ultimately paranoid. And like every dictator in history, they become not only alone, but
1: paranoid. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that what Nick's touched on is the great theme of loneliness. You know, what is the theme of loneliness in Macbeth? Well, it's massive. A lot of people often say, oh, but that's out of the text to consider loneliness. I think, well, yeah, okay, maybe, but maybe it's a key that you can stick in a lock and it'll open wondrous doors And there's something I always find very sad in that line when Lady Macbeth says, has Banquo gone from court? It's like the two people that he's been closest to in the world are Banquo and Lady Macbeth. What's sad too, you often see sort of um, very expensive flats and houses advertised with great entertaining spaces. So you're going to fill it with all your friends. That concept of loneliness, I mean, loneliness is such a taboo thing that we can't talk about. It's the actual sense of being completely cut off and unable to make connection with other people. That's a terrible problem, and these plays are very uh, about that aspect of humanity. And he says to the, the lords, let's keep apart so we'll have more to chat about at dinner. you know, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that in real life, if you're staying with them. A distance grows between him and other people that's out of his control.
2: Well, he certainly lost his wife. I mean, somehow don't you feel that the murder is the one thing that they imagine is going to bring them together in a huge sort of orgasmic act. The murder will sort of conjoin them forever. And of course it does the exact opposite.
0: We've talked a lot in other conversations about that scene where they come out from the murder. And you always describe that scene as they talk about anywhere but here almost every single line in that scene they're talking about other places apart from the place that they're in mm. because they just can't bear being in the same space mm. as each mm. other because the marriage is broken they've done this awful thing
1: yes I mean the rule is as touched on by Beckett you know anywhere but here anytime but now
0: so they're tr- constantly trying to escape this terrible here and now that they've put themselves
2: into well I think I think that he never leaves that room where he did the, the, the murder and she goes into the room and she never leaves it either and that's proven you know it comes out in her nightmares and the famous sleepwalking scene there she is back in that room
0: now i often feel that many of our conversations return to macbeth And that's because it's a play you've done loads and loads of times. You've done two big productions of it, one at the National Theatre of Finland in 1987, and most recently a British production in 2009 with Will Keane and Anastasia Hilly playing the Macbeths. But it also comes up a lot in workshops. It seems to have kept you fascinated. And I've seen your your most recent 2009 production, and I'd love to start with talking about the witches in this production. So Nick, could you describe how you made the witches happen.
2: Well, you never actually see the witches. You hear the voices. And you never, in fact, see any objects because all the objects are mimed and the blood is mimed. It's a problem in Macbeth, um, blood, because there's a lot of it. And in a sense, it's best, I think, left to the imagination. If somehow you can conjure it without seeing it, then you're being more successful in terms of, of... the theatre of, the, of the piece but no the witches are imagined and in fact the way we played it was that it was like the whole company played the witches and you see the witches through the eyes of Macbeth and earlier of Macbeth and Banquo.
0: And I thought this was such an interesting choice for this production because you know just like we don't see the witches we also don't see Banquo's ghost And we also don't see the hallucinating dagger. And we also don't see the real concrete things in the play, like the cups they're drinking from or the real daggers that he brings out from the chamber. And usually in a production of Macbeth, you see the difference between what he's hallucinating because it's not there and what's real because they are on stage as props. But here, because everything was mimed, it blurred the boundaries between what was real and what wasn't. The whole play became about... How he was seeing the world, how they were seeing the world, and it didn't matter what we could see or not. Why was that important to you to to blur this distinction between what was real and what wasn't real?
1: I think that expression "present fears are less than horrible imaginings." That it's very important that they don't really know what's real and what's not quite real. But but, but it's not just external objects they don't know is real or not. They don't even know what's real in themselves. Somebody once said to me, "You know, Macbeth is a great play about ambition." I'm not sure that, I'm not even sure that Macbeth's ambition is particularly real. I, I think it's even more mysterious than that, he doesn't know why he does it. Also, It makes me think that one shouldn't make Macbeth too dependent on the witches. But it's very clear from his first soliloquy and later on that they've already had conversations about this before the witches come along. So I think that the witches are like a coincidence, but the life is full of coincidences. And particularly if we're in a heightened state, you'll see coincidental mentions everywhere of the thing that's upsetting you.
0: And it's fairly clear in Macbeth's first speech that what terrifies him about the witches is they give voice to something that he's already thought about. Yes. That he's terrified that they've put their finger on this secret ugly thing that's already in him. And that in a way, you know, he was good to go before the witches turned up. But that's what I really loved about the witches in your production. Because by not showing them, by not putting on stage these kind of magical beings. It became all about looking at Will Keane, embodying Macbeth's total horror that his imaginings had been uncovered. It became all about Macbeth's perception of the world around him and Macbeth's own fears and own imaginings. By not showing the witches, you sort of refocus the spotlight onto what's really going on in those scenes, the really dirty, grubby, scary human thing. And I found that really exhilarating to
1: watch. Yes, it was entirely about his responsibility. And, and one of the things that we like to do in life, of course, is make other people responsible for things that we do that are bad. But, you know, it, it's Othello who strangles Desdemona. It's, it's, it's not Iago. It's not the witches that knife Duncan. It's Macbeth that does it. We have to take responsibility for our, our own actions. And I can't quite say the witches are incidental to Macbeth. Um, because they're absolutely central to the play that Shakespeare wrote, but for me, the psyche of Macbeth is somebody who is probably going to do something like that anyway, and that do you know, and that somehow he was somehow going to orchestrate his life into a disaster. I think the thing that really makes them screw up that we forget is how well they're doing. I mean, nothing destroys people as fast as success, and he has given so much. And success is incredibly dangerous for human beings because success frightens people because if you're given success, it can be taken away from you. Now, gratitude is also very frightening for human beings. When we are grateful, we should feel so grateful that we're grateful. But very often when we're given things, on the surface, of course, we feel gratitude. But underneath it all, if it's something really, really important, You can feel angry that you needed that thing from that other person. That gratitude makes you feel a debtor if you're not careful. And at the beginning of the play, Duncan showers Macbeth and Lady Macbeth with honors. And in fact, coming to stay with them in their shabby little castle is actually an enormous honor and and one well, of it's almost funny when when he arrives at the castle, Lady Macbeth meets um, Duncan, and starts every point twice done and then done double, but poor and single service to etc etc, and then she goes on to um, we rest your hermits we rest your hermits means that we're going to thank you so much that the hermits that you've got praying for you that they can take a rest because we're going to be praying so hard for you i mean it's impossible to decipher what she means and you read the speech of lady macbeth and you think do you know lady macbeth you know thank you would have been enough it's like one of those a speech at the oscars that goes on for ages but thank you is, is all you really need to say. And she can't say thank you. Because she's tortured by gratitude. Because she, she's tortured by gratitude. And that wonderful American prayer for what we are about to receive, may the good Lord make us truly thankful, is brilliant because it says, do you know, the food's on the table, but do you know, I'm not grateful because I was entitled to it. And I'd like the spirit to come into me to take away my entitlement so that I can feel gratitude. And I think this is an enormous problem in the lives of all of us that to actually feel gratitude is really, is a really wonderful thing. And it's painful because it means I'm not full, it means I'm not self sufficient.
0: So that's also one of the amazing paradoxes at the heart of this play that the very thing that makes the Macbeths. Uh, you know, resent and feel out of control and want to murder Duncan, this gratitude which proves that they are weak and need something from him, is also exactly the same thing that makes him, them love and adore and respect him. Yes. And they're torn in two yes. by this horrible...
1: Yes. Welcome to life. The thing is that when once one thinks about the play in this ter- these terms, it becomes much more like... <laughs> situations that you can feel closer at hand
0: and that's what I find exciting about the way that you talk about Macbeth is that it's really easy to think of this play as like a pair of psychopaths who talk to witches who end up murdering a king but your take on it seems to be you know Macbeth and Lady Macbeth could be sitting next to you on the bus yeah
1: could be you could be me let me not be tested my advice for directors, or actors, or anybody you know involved in the theatre: my advice is, look at your shoes and make sure they stay on the ground. So never feel slightly superior to the characters, or to the story, or to anybody or any events. Never ever feel superior. We can only understand and love and share if we do things horizontally, but we don't like it very much because it scares us. So we must never go in feeling morally superior to macbeth and lady macbeth they do disgusting things which i pray to god you know i never do anything like that in my whole life but i'm a human being and so i could and i just got to make sure that my feet are absolutely on the ground that when i talk to the audience i keep my feet on the ground so just making sure that you never feel like you're a teacher that you're never saying i know something and i'm going to tell you what i know because you don't know it If you're a good teacher you're sharing things with people
0: Now, I'd also love to talk about something, Nick, that you mentioned, which is the problem of blood in Macbeth and the way that miming everything means that you've solved not having to bring vast amounts of blood on stage. But also, again, I found it was an incredible refocusing of the action because in that last scene when Macbeth died, because there was no blood and also because there was no sword, we got a focus in on... The actual experience of his body being slowly impaled by a long sword that wasn't there—we could see every rib being hit as it went into his body, because that's all we could see was the reaction of his body. This and this connection between these two soldiers in their in this death throw. So this also seemed to me an amazing stroke of design, which was not again not about illustrating the set or illustrating the scene but giving the actors what they needed in order to get to the heart of the action. Design as catalyst rather than as decoration.
2: Well, I think not so much a design decision, but it was a simple decision that all objects and as many things as possible would be imagined. But, I mean, it's it's much more expressive. It allows the actors much more expression. if You're not worrying about if you have real swords and you're worrying about all sorts of complicated things like safety and, um, and and if you think about it, you cannot realistically murder someone with swords in a fight on stage. You just simply can't believe it if the swords are real. I mean, it's just not possible. Whereas if you make that leap of the imagination and see him, as, as you say, Lucy, being impaled on this huge broadsword, he can express so much more with his body and you could if it, uh, if there was a real sword
1: there. We did, of course, rehearse with broadswords because they have a special weight. I mean, all of these objects you need to rehearse because it has to be absolutely carnalized in rehearsal. And then you put them aside.
0: But there is also one moment that we should mention,
1: which is this was a completely sparse
0: set with everything mimed and everything in monochrome, with the exception of one scene. Nick, can you tell us what that was?
2: Well... The porter scene is an exceptional scene in the play. It's just something bizarre in the middle of the play and a comic interlude in some respects. And, well, Kelly Houghton, who played it in a great big red wig, and she was sort of constrained in one of these boxes, which was a set. And like all porters, they can't move out of their little office. They're stuck behind a desk with a telephone and a monitor and whatever. And she had to deal with the arrival of Macduff stuck in quite a realistic space with all sorts of props and objects at her disposal.
0: And incredibly brightly coloured. I mean, you know, that great big red wig, but she had like posters on the walls and like a telephone and mugs and this incredible burst of colour and detailed set in the middle of this like monochrome wasteland that was the rest of the play. But it also reminded us, I felt that that scene is so weird in the middle of the play. There's this kind of incredibly terrifying scene just beforehand where they've just come out from murdering Duncan. The following scene, they're going to discover his body in the middle of the night. And you've got this weird comic interlude with the porter in between. What is it that's so interesting, do you think, about that weird shift that Shakespeare does where he just like rips the rug out from and the And he robes? makes
2: all sorts of obscure references, which weren't obscure at the time, of course, because it was highly controversial. These Jesuits... Um who were on trial? I think Garnet was on trial as a as a saboteur as as a terrorist, but that was obviously very controversial. It was politically very of the moment when he was writing the play. And so I think that kind of justifies us in making a more vivid, as it were, contemporary. Point out of the porter.
1: But it's also, I think, totally in the spirit of Shakespeare that he sort of says, you know, would you like a harmonious world? Would you like a sort of uniform world of harmony? And well, you ain't going to get it from me, mate. And you'll, you can go through a play and you suddenly get a slap in the face. I love 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 that in Shakespeare the way that you suddenly get a song or you suddenly get a dance or you suddenly get somebody coming on it comes on from another and sometimes it's very violent as in as in the Porter as in the the, the sadly abnormally cut clown in in Othello um and and of course the fool in Lear and the autolycus when he when he bursts into the Winter's Tale but they come from different plays and that Shakespeare is sort of saying you've, you've got you know this nice view of the cosmos that we're setting up well it doesn't exist and I and I feel that always very much I need to honor that and I think it's really important that we know that people are adults we treat the audience as adults and that people can take violent jumps in tone the violent jump in tone really wakes people up I, I love it
0: and it's also one of the reasons I think I really love Shakespeare is that The plays are badly behaved and are messy and are perfectly imperfect. They are weird in a way that makes them deeply human. And also what I love about that Porter scene is that it's not just arbitrarily weird as a mood shift. It also really earns its keep as a scene, I think, because it reminds us that in this kind of great Sturm and Drang creeping around in the dark and murdering each other, there's also a porter at the south entry who's got to get on with her job. And it suddenly throws the whole of the rest of the play into contrast. You're reminded that there's a lot more going on, a whole community of people around this warfare and murder and what happens to the king.
1: Exactly. Because to begin with, I remember, when, you know, when I was a v- very, very young, thinking that you know, it would be my job to somehow impose unity. I mean, how many feet my shoes were above the ground? I mean, who am I to be imposing unity or anything? Life doesn't have unity. Life is full of surprises. And that is what is so fantastic about Shakespeare. And what's fantastic about Shakespeare is he doesn't hover above us. He's not trying to make the world a better place by telling us how to be better people. He does make the world a better place by opening our eyes and sharing with us how we deceive ourselves over and over and over again and how treacherous our hearts are.
0: Now I have a a big question, which is: what do you think it's most difficult to stage or tackle in Macbeth? Maybe starting with you, Nick. What's a really big challenge? We've talked about the blood and the witches. But is there any other moments in the play that just are real mind-benders from a design point of view?
2: Well, uh, the um, apparitions at the end, the whole sequence of kings disappearing into the future of Banquo's heirs, again, you know, we relied on Will Keane's imagination to provide those.
1: I think the most difficult moment of stage is the very first moment that they have together, because they, you know, they're both planning to kill Duncan He's come back after a battle and what do they do? And do they they jump into each other's arms and snog? It's actually rather difficult to do that if you're actually also planning to murder somebody who's in your house that night. So that moment is really, really difficult. The other thing is is bringing the knives after the murder. She says, why did you bring the knives from the place? Unfortunately, she says it quite away into the scene. So she's <laughs> how did she not notice? How did the she not notice them there? And can he hold the knives behind his back? And we've had so many different solutions. We've done it endlessly in Italy and Spain, and so on as workshops. Um, and some actors have had ideas like knocking the daggers into a, a wooden beam at the beginning. That's really, really difficult. <laughs> and if Shakespeare were here, I'd be, I'd be. <laughs>
2: I will. There's a problem with the stage direction. There's a direction. problem with the
1: stage direction, yes. It must have
2: been problematic for him because they were playing in daylight. So, I mean, what they ca- he came on with the daggers in broad daylight. You know, we can do a bit of lighting, plunge them into darkness.
0: But It's also one of those questions that reminds you that, you know, these plays, he wrote them down to be performed, not to be published. And presumably, this might have been down to something that the original company came up with. That was part of their version of this scene. That's just naturally found its way into the text, and that we just don't know what they what they were up to with those daggers for the first half of that scene. But
2: the, the lines had to come there because that gave her the motivation to take them back in again. So that they couldn't come any earlier; otherwise, she'd have got. We wouldn't have had the scene, would we?
1: This is one of the terrible things about doing play like is that you can spend five weeks discussing those two bloody lives. after a while you've got to say do you know i'm going to guillotine this you know i don't care if this moment's crap but we have uh, the rest of the play to do and you find something to do
0: but also deliciously you feel that if shakespeare had to take his gcse english he wouldn't pass that part of the creative writing no he certainly
1: wouldn't pass that part you know
0: (laughs) um i would also love to ask what was your favorite moment in staging this this play
2: well my favorite moment is not in the text it's in our production, again with Will and Anastasia, when they were still entwined around each other, and Malcolm is approaching with the forest, and so they're still very much together until the announcement that the Queen is dead, and then so they, they untwined and she and she walked off stage, and that struck me as somehow very much at the heart of things.
0: And that was extraordinary that moment because. Lady Macbeth actually disappears out of the play after the scene where she's having a nightmare. And you just kept her on stage all the way through, entwined around Macbeth, but sort of in his imagination, sort of not really there, but also there, as if they were just kind of wedded to each other in this horrible embrace that he couldn't let go of her. So the moment when they say the Queen is dead, she... He was holding her face in his hands and she just detached herself and left. And you could actually see in that moment him realising that she had gone and him just not knowing how to be when she was gone from his life. It was an incredibly powerful choice. And again, because it didn't really matter whether it was real or imagined because you'd played with the boundaries of what was fact and what was important in their imaginations it got to the heart of the real break, the real trauma that was happening between them. What about you,
1: Declan? Well, I used to love, after the Banquo banquet scene, when the two of them were left having thrown, like, the world's worst dinner party, you know, um, and they're left at the table sort of eating, finishing a glass of wine, and she's in, and they have this desultory conversation about, you know, how goes the night or, to odds with morning, which is which. It was very domestic, and it was like they had nothing to say to each other, and you just felt that terrible separation after the people had gone, and, and this sense of embarrassment, loneliness, and embarrassment is another word I think that's really useful to put into the centre of all of these plays because embarrassment will yield an awful lot of human things. To you if you put it in.
0: And that reminds me also of what you were saying about the scene where they have to see each other for the first time and they're not quite sure whether they should be embracing or like how to even play that scene. Like you said, there are scenes where people seem to walk in from other plays, but there's also plenty of scenes where Macbeth and Lady Macbeth don't really know
1: what play they're in. <laughs> when something awful happens in your life, like, you know, if, if if somebody you love is sick and you're summoned to intensive care that night and you're sitting in the weird blue corridor with other people, you don't know what play you're in, you don't know what space you're in, you don't know what time it is. You're desperate for something normal to happen that will locate you. You want to be put back into the space. And if you describe it, you'll always say the same thing. You'll always say, it seems so unreal. As soon as the stakes go up, if something really dramatic happens, you know neither time nor place, you don't know where you are, you want something to locate you, you want some GPS. And I think that's really important. It's really good to remember that They're, they're struggling to find themselves.
0: Fantastic. And I think that's where we're going to end for today. Thank you very much both. And we'll meet next week for our next play. Thank you, Lucy. Thanks, Lucy. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Not True But Useful. If you've enjoyed it, check out the last two series on the Cheek by Jal website or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find archive images of Declan and Nick's productions of Macbeth there. We're going to have a new episode for you every week for the next couple of months, so don't forget to subscribe. The theme music for this series was composed by Paddy Caneen for Cheek by Gel's production of The Winter's Tale, with additional music in this episode by Catherine Jays for Macbeth.